Well, g'day everyone. Uh, as Dave said, my name is Jake. I'm married to Eden uh, and I mostly attend the 7pm congregation and it's my great privilege today to speak from God's word. But before we begin, let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. Please speak to us today and apply your word to our hearts by your spirit and please help me to speak clearly as I ought to. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, every year in New South Wales alone, 48,000 people hear the words, you have cancer. And if you or a loved one are counted among this number, I truly am sorry to hear that. It shouldn't take much to convince you that we live in a broken world. And more than that, it shouldn't take much to convince you that having a a hope to hold on to really matters. You might have heard of Relay for Life, an event organised by the Cancer Council, This is one of their signs near the Innovation Campus. They have hope for a cancer-free future. Hope lives, they say, in supporting loved ones with cancer. Hope lives in raising money to beat cancer. Hope lives in surviving cancer. Now, I think the Cancer Council are really onto something here regarding hope. They understand that having a hope that lives gives purpose and meaning to life here and now. But my question is, does the Cancer Council hope have a solid foundation? Will it deliver? And putting that aside for the moment, I think when we look around at our world today, not many people have any hope at all. I was talking to our elderly neighbour the other day about the state of the world and he said, I've lost all hope for the future. So in a world of questionable hope or no hope at all, what difference does it make to be a Christian? Well, my prayer for today is that we'll see that the Christian hope of salvation can meet the Cancer Council hope and so much more because it is grounded in Jesus. And that's the the main takeaway from today. The hope of salvation is grounded in Jesus. And these words that they've read to us before are really helpful. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Now, for a bit of context, uh, we're looking at a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in a place called Thessalonica. In chapter 1, we saw how, upon hearing the good news about Jesus, these people turned away from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. In chapter 2, we felt Paul's heart as he longed to see these new believers after being torn away from them for a time. He even goes as far as to say that they are his joy and his crown in which he will glory in the presence of God when Jesus comes. In chapter 3, we heard Paul pray that the Lord would make their love increase and overflow for one another and that God might strengthen their hearts to be blameless and holy in the presence of God when the Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And now in chapter 4 and 5, Paul gives the church a taste of what this life of holiness and ever-increasing love looks like. So if you've been following along, you can see that all throughout this book, Paul has in view the coming of Jesus. And it's this very topic that we have before us today. It was clearly a topic that Paul had taught the Thessalonians on and it was a topic that they had lots of questions about and maybe you do too. The passage is split pretty evenly into two sections as Paul addresses two of their concerns and in both 
Paul encourages them with Christian hope, the hope of salvation. John Stott describes Christian hope as the joyful and confident expectation of eternal life through Jesus Christ. So with this joyful and confident expectation, Paul addresses their concerns. The first one relating to the Christian dead with the hope of resurrection. Now lots of us don't like to think about death. Uh, In my generation, most people like to live in the moment uh, rather than think about what's to come at the end of life. But death really does come to us all. 10 out of 10 die, death has a 100% success rate. And when it comes to those we love, it really hurts. In the Thessalonian church, it had been reported to Paul that some of their church family had passed away and they were worried. What would happen to their lost loved ones when Jesus returned? What would happen? Would they miss the big event uh, since their souls are already in heaven? Now, before we judge them and think that we know better now since Jesus hasn't come back yet, keep in mind this was only about 20 years after Jesus had risen and ascended into heaven. And so when they had heard of Jesus saying, I'm coming soon, they really believed him. Well, let's have a look at how Paul responds uh, in chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, please note here, Paul is not saying, don't grieve. He's saying, don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. It's right for us to grieve lost loved ones. Think about Jesus when his friend Lazarus died. He wept at the scene of death. And in Romans 12, we're told to mourn with those who mourn. So when our Christian brothers or sisters pass away, we're to grieve with hope. I'm sure many of us have been to a funeral of a friend or a family member, someone who, as best we know, did not receive Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And we find this a really hard thing, don't we? What do you say to a grieving family member when you know the reality of what's to come for that person? Often eulogies will be filled with hopeful words like, we know you're looking down from above or rest in peace. But the reality is those without Christ are without hope. And sadly, only an eternity of suffering awaits. But for those who did share our hope in Jesus, we're to grieve differently. We're to grieve with hope because the dead in Christ will rise. Have a look at what Paul rests his case on here in this creed-like statement of verse 14. He says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Sounds a bit like one of those creeds we say here, doesn't it? But do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that we can grieve with hope because the Christian dead will rise again. Just as Jesus died and rose, so also will God raise to life those who have died in him. The pattern of the Christian is the pattern of Christ. And we see Paul emphasise the resurrection of the dead in verse 15 where he says, According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those who are still alive when Jesus comes will not precede rising to be with Jesus. Instead, at the end of verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, verse 17, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
and so we will be with the Lord forever. Do you see how our hope for salvation is grounded in Jesus? Just as Jesus rose from the dead, so will the believer. Our hope has its rock-solid foundation on the historical fact that Jesus is risen, so we can grieve with hope. And before we take a look at their second concern, do notice how Paul describes death here. Instead of rebuking the Thessalonians for their wrong thinking, he uses a very pastoral tone to describe Christian death as sleep. You can see that in verses 13, 14 and 15. For the Christian, death is not the end, it's simply a transition. Do you remember when Jesus told his disciples about Lazarus who had died? Listen to our Lord's words in John 11. He says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And when Jesus had gone to the tomb after Lazarus had been dead for four days, he had the tombstone removed. And after praying to God, verse 43, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. You see, for our Lord Jesus, death is just asleep. See how much power Christ has such that he can call dead people to life simply with his words. And this call of Christ to raise the dead is likely what is meant in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16 where we read, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, there it is, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is the hope we have, isn't it? Jesus is coming back. He's coming to call those who are asleep to wake up in him. And at the archangel's command and at the last trumpet, in one climactic moment in all of human history, all Christians, past and present, will rise and gather to be with our precious Lord in the air. This is the joyful and confident expectation we have. And it's all based on the truth of Jesus. Christ has died, Christ has risen. And so knowing that hope of resurrection, Paul can say in verse 18, therefore let us encourage one another with these words. And I think we're really good at encouraging one another here at St. Michael's. From my experience, uh, when one of our brothers or sisters falls asleep in the Lord, uh, often there's a flood of upbuilding and encouraging messages, whether in person or over the phone. And when this does happen, We ought to keep encouraging each other with God's word more and more, especially with the hopeful words that we find in this passage. And may I even suggest by way of encouragement uh, that we change our language from passed away or died to fallen asleep, as this scripture does. Perhaps when we speak of so-and-so who has fallen asleep in the Lord, it will remind us that for the Christian, death is not the end, it's just a transition. So we're told to grieve with hope because the dead in Christ will rise and not only does our hope of resurrection rest in Jesus' resurrection but our hope of rescue from the coming wrath rests on Jesus' death. Have a look at those key verses again. Chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us 
so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. In 2018, I went with a school circus group to the big island of Hawaii. Uh, You can ask me what I did in the circus later. Uh, But when we were there, we did a bit of sightseeing and we visited one of the four active volcanoes named Kilauea. And as I recall the trip, I don't ever remember being told when the volcano last erupted. So I just thought there was peace and safety, no worries. But less than two months later, after we had left, uh, the volcano did erupt. You can see it on the screen. There was about one cubic kilometres worth of lava that flowed out of this thing. And it had devastating effects on the neighbouring regions. It destroyed homes and permanently affected thousands of lives. Now, it would be safe to say I had no idea when the volcano would erupt. Uh, and if I, if I could know, I probably would have wanted to know. Um, and in, such, in much the same way, the Thessalonians wanted to know at what time God's wrath would erupt on the earth. But it seems clear from the start of chapter 5 that the underlying concern wasn't just times and dates because Paul says in verse 1 and 2, we do not need to write to you about times and dates because you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The Thessalonians knew just as Jesus had taught that no one knows the day nor the hour, not even the angels in heaven or the Son of God himself but only the Father. And it would come like a thief in the night when no one would expect it. So, no, the Thessalonians knew they weren't allowed to know times and dates, so it seems that actually the underlying concern is how best to prepare for that coming day. Perhaps they thought that they too would somehow get swept away in the sweep of God's fiery judgment or that they wouldn't be able to stand before Christ when he comes. And this seems like a fair concern, actually, when we understand what is meant by the day of the Lord. Joel, one of the Old Testament prophets, speaks about the day like this in chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? This Old Testament concept is the day where God would execute impartial judgment on his enemies and rescue his faithful people. It's a terrifying day to consider, far worse than a mere volcano eruption. And so as Paul picks up this idea, he elaborates on it in chapter 5 verse 3 where he says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, I'm told that pregnant women don't get to choose when they get their labour pains. One minute they're going about their day, the next minute, bam, labour pains begin, and there's no delaying or escaping them. And just like labour pains, so will be the day of God's judgement. As the people of Wollongong are going around completely oblivious, trusting in their false security, saying peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them. And they will not escape. If you turn your eyes over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 or turn over the page, from verse 6, this is how Paul describes that day. He says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. 
He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marvelled at among all those who have believed. The day of the Lord is terrifying. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? For all those who do not obey the gospel by putting their faith in Christ, there will be blazing fire, punishment and eternal destruction in hell. And if you're sitting here today and you know in your heart of hearts that you're trusting in false security, today is the day to repent. If you know you're just hoping for the best on that day, today is the day to reconsider. You will not stand before the Lord Almighty when he comes. Jesus Christ is your only hope for rescue. You see, it's on the cross that God's lava-like wrath was funnelled into his beloved Son in our place. And it's Christ on the cross that we can have the certain hope of rescue from this coming wrath. So repent and believe the gospel today and you will not experience that day like the sudden destruction of a thief. You will not experience that day like the inescapable labour pains of a pregnant woman. Instead, you'll be like the Thessalonians and all Christians who have the hope of rescue as children of the light. Have a look back in chapter 5 verse 4. Paul says, But you, brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Instead, verse 8, we belong to the day. All who have trusted in Christ's death and resurrection will have the spiritual blindfold removed and our eyes opened to the reality of Christ. We are no longer oblivious as to what's to come. And as such, we keep in step like a child with their father with the reality of the day of the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, an electrician came to fix our smoke alarm and since I knew he was coming, I prayed to God for an opportunity to speak to him about Christ. This was just after hearing the talks from the church conference. And in God's kindness, I got to share the good news with him and and warn him of the coming judgment. He was quite respectful despite hearing the sharp truth. Uh, And in the conversation, he told me that he thinks some Christians are just too focused on God and Jesus and they need to come back down to reality. Now, when he said this, I thought, but that is true reality. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here in verses 6 to 8. As children of the day, we ought to be awake and sober to the reality of the day of the Lord. And as we serve Jesus, our commanding officer, with vigilance, We ought to put on the defensive parts of our armour. Have a look in verse 8 there. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. As we await the day of Christ, we serve as Christ's soldiers in enemy territory. And it's warfare out there in the world. The enemy is very clever at his attacks. Maybe you've bought into the devil's lie uh, when he says you don't need to warn anyone about the judgment to come. Just sit back and get comfortable. You wouldn't want to disturb the peace, would you? 
Well, in that case, I think we ought to put on faith as a breastplate, trusting that what God says is true and warning our neighbours with gentleness and respect, regardless of what they might think. Maybe there are some brothers or sisters at church or Bible study who, quite frankly, just get on our nerves a bit uh, and you can hear that little voice saying, just slander them already. You're already thinking these thoughts. You may as well tell someone. We're home now anyway. No one else will hear. Well, in that case, we ought to put on love as a breastplate. Love covers a multitude of sins and we ought to labour in love for one another. Maybe you've got an illness and the tempter is tempting you to doubt your own salvation, saying, God wouldn't do this to one of his own children, would he? Are you sure you're truly saved? Well, in that case, we ought to put on hope as our helmet. Our hope is grounded in Jesus, not in our feelings. Whatever lies the world or the devil or our own sinful self tries to tell us, as children of the light, we ought to prepare for this coming day by putting on the defensive parts of our armour daily. And Paul rests his case here on verses 9 and 10 again. Have a look. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. We can have this joyful and confident expectation of our salvation because our hope is grounded in Jesus. His resurrection gives us the hope of resurrection and his death gives us the hope of rescue. And once again in verse 11, we're told to encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Let's keep building one another up as fellow soldiers, helping each other to put on our armour of faith, hope and love and to do so more and more as we await our good Lord and King. Well, to finish, I hope you've seen how our hope of salvation uh, meets the Cancer Council hope and so much more because it will certainly deliver. In his short book, uh, Don't Waste Your Cancer, American pastor John Piper recalls the time his doctor surprised him with an urgent biopsy. In the moments waiting for the doctor, Piper uh, recalled his morning devotion, which was on 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9 and 10, and he just thought to himself, that is enough. I am not destined for wrath, but to live with Christ. What a great hope we have. Let me pray to finish. Thank you, Father, that you have not destined us for wrath, but to receive salvation through Jesus. Thank you that our hope for salvation is grounded in him, in his death and resurrection. And now, Lord God, may you make us abound in love for one another and for everyone. And may you establish our hearts to be blameless and holy before you when the Lord Jesus comes with all his saints. In Jesus' name, amen.